Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. In 1989, five teenage boys from Harlem were arrested and charged with the rape and brutal beating of a white female jogger in Central Park in New York. They were treated with disrespect, distrust, and made to feel less than human. The prosecutors and media started referring to them as a singular unit, the Central Park Five. Director Ava DuVernay is retelling their story now for a new generation with a Netflix miniseries called When They See Us. It is really compelling television, although I will say it is also really difficult to watch. It addresses the fact that discrimination against people of color is something just as relevant today as it was 30 years ago. And Donald Trump, the president of the United States today, plays a role taking out ads back in the 1980s in New York papers calling for the death penalty for the Central Park Five. The catch is that the boys didn't commit the crime, and yet they served years behind bars anyway. Here to talk about what the series and what viewers in 2019 can learn from it is TV critic Jen Cheney. Jen Cheney, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So that something that uh, Ava DuVernay is really successful with in this series is her ability to treat the five boys as five separate people. She doesn't lump them into a singular narrative. Talk about how this brings more humanity to these characters than we have seen before. I think that's one of the most vital and important things that this miniseries does is the conversation around this case has always referred to them as the Central Park Five. That was the moniker they were given and it makes them seem like a unit or a monolith, when the reality is these were five individuals whose lives were profoundly impacted and, and uh, you know, who, who lost portions of their lives to, to the prison system when they didn't commit the crime. And I think what she does is she really treats them as individuals and, and follows them not only through the interrogation process and the trial, but also, you know, when... Some of them do get out of prison and they try to come back and resume their lives, just the the difficulties that they encounter. So you really do have a sense of each of them as separate individuals as opposed to just part of this collective that we've referred to them as for so long. Yeah, and and I think for many people, uh, especially because this is 30 years later, there's so much here that is new. I mean, I can remember this very clearly. I was I was also a teenager uh, when this happened, and I can remember how profoundly it struck me, just the idea that uh, that this happened and the way these uh, these boys were treated. Um, but but thirty years later, I think there's a lot of people who don't have a lot of familiarity with this story in any way. Mm-hmm. For sure, I mean there are people who are who are younger um, who are familiar with these kinds of issues, but didn't necessarily. Uh, grow up with the familiarity with this case that uh, other people have. Um, so I, I think it does show uh, what a profound injustice this was at the time, but also connects it back to the fact that these kinds of things still go on uh, in a lot of ways and suggests that there's still a lot of a lot of work that we have to do as a society to to make sure these things don't happen again. Yeah. Uh, this story is not told in documentary form. Uh, it's it's told as a reenactment. Talk about the power of doing it that way. Something that Ava DuVernay has done before with history, 
in this instance, uh, does this make the story more powerful or relatable in your opinion? Uh, you know, I think it does. Uh, there has been a documentary about this case in the past, so it's not as though it hasn't been done in that format. Um, but I think doing it this way, um, it really does feel like more of a narrative as opposed to here's someone telling you history. You get really involved in the story and, and really involved with these characters, even though they were actually based on real people. Um, I think it has sort of a, a different power and a, and a different ability to engage you than a documentary, you know, does, even mm. though certainly that can be very powerful as well. Mm. And I think we've seen this a lot in, in television, taking these real um, cases and, and doing them as scripted series, um, certainly with, for example, The People versus O.J. Simpson, uh, a, a case that people know very, very well. Uh, but yet, when you watched that, you felt like you were kind of seeing it for the first time or seeing certain um, perspectives for the first time because it just it allows a different window into the story. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Donald Trump, who's president of the United States now and uh, back then was a very popular uh, real estate developer in the city of New York. Uh, his role, of course, in this is is infamous and uh, people who are familiar with the story have, I think, deep-seated uh, resentments of him uh, for that. Uh, talk about how the series deals with uh, with Donald Trump. Well, as you mentioned, he took out advertisements in uh, the New York newspapers calling for uh, the death penalty for the boys. Um, and he held a press conference and, and talked about, you know, the fact that they were, they were guilty and, and that something needed to be done about this. And really, uh, advanced a lot of the rhetoric uh, about this, that, that this was a, a pack of quote-unquote animals and, and really not seeing these boys as, as human. Um, and, yeah, that was a, obviously a big issue at the time, uh, yet somehow, you know, I think it did come up when he was running for president, but maybe not with the prominence that perhaps it should have. Uh, and, and Ava DuVernay weaves this in, um, you know, using actual footage from, from back in the uh, – at the time and, and putting it on televisions and having some of the parents of the accused actually see this man calling for the, the death penalty for their kids. Mm. Uh, and I think seeing it from their perspective, again, just gives it a, a, a power that is, you can't deny how, how hard it would have been for them to see this information, let alone, you know, every other African-American watching that. Sure, sure. Uh, of course, Donald Trump has never apologized for what he said about the Central Park Five or for taking out uh, those television ads, which is one of the things I think breeds that real resentment uh, of him in that case. Uh, it's also interesting in this series that, that we see Felicity Huffman in the role of Linda Fairstein. Uh, obviously, Huffman has been dealing with her own issues around racial and economic entitlement in the media. Uh, and here we see her playing someone who is adept at navigating and exploiting a criminal justice landscape that's rampant with uh, inequality. Uh, since the re release of the series, of course, Fairstein has been dropped by her publishers and she's under a lot of other criticism, uh, although she recently came out and called the series an outright fabrication. Uh, it seems like there is still a lot of contention about this case. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, uh, you know, to your point about Felicity Huffman, I mean, it adds another layer to her performance, what she's been going through in the sense of, 
here's a woman coming at this from a very white privileged point of view, um, knowing about her personal life at this point, that, that sort of gives it another kind of meta layer there. But, um, yeah, I mean, Linda Fairstein has written an op-ed in, in recent days and uh, saying that while it was correct that, that the convictions for these young men were, were vacated, that they still may be implicated in some way and, and other things that happened in Central Park that night. Um, it seems like there's a real stubbornness on her part to admit, you know what, like, we really didn't have evidence uh, for anything. Um, and she doesn't want to admit that she was a hundred percent wrong, uh, and I think that's troubling. It, it gets back to what you were saying before about Donald Trump not wanting to apologize. She doesn't seem to want to apologize either. Uh, and I know that um, you know Ava DuVernay and and the production had actually reached out to her to to see if she wanted to consult on it, and she had said no. Um, and I don't know what all the reasons for that were, but. Uh, you know, for her to come back around and say it's now a total fabrication, I don't know. It, yeah. it just doesn't quite sit, sit right, I mean, at it, least with me. It really does get to, I think, the, the, the kind of unresolved feelings that surround this story still for people. Uh, this idea that um, uh, this, this clash of ideals, I guess, uh, around the way that these uh, these boys were treated, uh, around the idea that they were treated the way they were largely because they were African-American, about the idea of how quickly people wanted to believe that what happened to this woman, this brutal attack on this woman, had to have been done uh, by African-Americans. Uh, th these are things that we just, uh, I think, are still really struggling to get our minds around. And I think that that kind of explains... Uh, people like Linda Fairstein and and their attempt to kind of dig in and say, no, 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 I wasn't wrong about this. Uh, it, it, there's some other explanation for it. Right. And I, I think another troubling aspect about this, too, is that Trisha Miley, who was the victim in the case, um, she seems to have some, some doubts as to whether uh, the five young men were really res responsible um, or if, that they might have actually been responsible. And who knows why she feels that way, whether, you know, from what she was told by prosecutors and, and police at the time, if she sort of bought into that or, or what. And, and you don't want to fault her because she was, you know, she was brutalized and uh, very much a victim in this situation as well. Um, but it, it adds another layer of complexity um, to the whole thing to know that she too still doesn't feel completely at peace with what happens. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I think almost anyone who, who looks at this uh, uh, is, is hard to come to any sort of peaceful uh, conclusion about it. I mean, uh, one of the things about the series, uh, as I said in the open, is how difficult it is to watch. I mean, this is a very compelling story, uh, but it's horrifying. And I think especially if you're a parent uh, of a young man, uh, of a young black man, um, this this reminds of the dangers that kind of lurk around all kinds of corners for, uh, for your kids. And it, it really demonstrates how profoundly those things can affect someone's life. I mean, these these five boys, uh, even though they were eventually exonerated, even though they won a lot of money 
in a lawsuit, I mean, their lives were forever changed by what happened to them. Absolutely, no question. I mean, one of the things that I think the series gets across very well is just the sense that uh, even when you get out of prison and you've served your time for something like this, this, the degree to which it still hangs over your head, and then you talk about someone like Corey Wise, who's played, I thought, brilliantly by Jarrell Jerome, Mm -hmm. the one actor who plays um, one of the suspects, both from when he was a teenager all the way through adulthood, um, you know, he was the one sentenced as an adult and had to serve time in some really uh, challenging circumstances. He was sent to Rikers Island, among other um, prisons, uh, and, and often serving time in solitary. And much of the last episode really focuses on his experience and the degree to which he was completely isolated from uh, everything, as well as the, the, the boys um, that were accused alongside of him. Uh, I, I, that had a really profound impact on me watching this, for sure. Okay, Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Up next, we're going to talk with Jonathan Moore, who was one of the lead attorneys who handled the settlements for the Central Park Five. And, of course, we want to hear from you. Did you watch Ava DuVernay's docuseries about the Central Park Five? What did you think about the story? What do you think about the idea of people who are wrongly convicted and jailed for crimes? How do we make up for those kinds of errors? Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. We're talking this hour about the Central Park Five, which are on our minds again because of a recent docuseries by Ava DuVernay, a very piercing docuseries that talks about the things that happened to these five young men, not just when they were accused of this brutal attack in Central Park in 1989, but what happened to their lives after. We want to talk now about some of that aftermath uh, with somebody who was really involved. In 2003, the Central Park Five sued New York City for malicious prosecution, racial discrimination, and emotional distress. But the suit wasn't settled for more than a decade. Finally, in 2014, the city settled with the five men for $41 million. And then the men pursued an additional $51 million, $52 million, I'm sorry, in damages from the state of New York. They never got that additional $52 million, but they did get another $3.9 million in 2016 for the economic and emotional devastation that was caused by their incarcerations. They split up the money between the five men. The years that those young men spent behind bars were some of the most formative of their lives. Think about it. What were you doing in your teens in your early 20s. You were probably having fun with your friends, maybe getting up to a little trouble, and likely learning some of the most important lessons that would serve you in adulthood. These five men never got that chance. So how do you financially quantify years they'll never get back? We're going to talk now with a New York attorney who was involved in both of the settlements for the men. Jonathan Moore is a partner in the law firm of Beldock, Levine, and Hoffman, LLP. Jonathan Moore, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. Let's start with talking about how you got involved with this case. Well, I, I, I've 
been a civil rights lawyer for many, many years um, and have on occasion, more than on occasion, often sued the NYPD. And so when the lawyers who were involved in the uh, in setting aside the uh, conviction were looking for a civil lawyer, they came to me. So you specialize in cases that involve police misconduct. Talk talk about the misconduct element of this case and how often this sort of thing happens. Well, that's a that's a big question. (laughs) I'll see what I can do. I mean, clearly there. um, Clearly, at the heart of this matter was a was the uh, what we believe and what we we think is clear. um, Anybody, any fair minded person looking at it. Uh, at the heart of this case was the allegation that the detectives and the uh, district attorneys in this case manufactured these statements that were then used as really the only evidence to uh, obtain their uh, uh, convictions at trial back in uh, 1990, 1991, mm-hmm. after, after the incident occurred. Um, that's at the heart of the case. And, uh, um, we know now, uh, from hindsight, tracing back from the time when the actual perpetrator of the crime was uh, came forward. And he didn't come forward to our investigator, or he came forward to the to officials of the uh, uh, New York State Department of Corrections. Uh, for whatever reason, he felt like he had to uh, come forward and tell the truth. Um, he. Uh, confessed to the crime. They did a DNA analysis. Uh, there, was a, there was some samples found on the victim that were uh, uh, had been used to try to match any of the, all the other young men in the park today that were negative, but it matched um, Mateus Reyes. Hmm. So we know that he committed this vicious rape and sexual assault. The second question was whether he acted alone. And it's clear from his modus operandi and from and from all the evidence in the case that uh, he acted alone, uh, there's no evidence that he knew any of these five kids or any of the kids who were in the park that day. There were up to 30 of them. And uh, so if you accept the fact, which the district attorney of the, of the city of New York accepted uh, in 2002 when they reinvestigated it, that, that he acted alone, that leaves you with the burning question, which, which these cops and these detectives never want to answer, which is how did the information that ended up in these statements get there? Mm. And the only, the only answer to that is that it was supplied, uh, fed to them by the detectives as a result of an intense period of interrogation that included threats and uh, uh, trick, trickery and false promises and uh, manipulation of their parents and... Um, and uh, 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 a host of other uh, things that really led to uh, uh, them being uh, gi- giving these false statements. Mm. Uh, promised, they all promised they would go home if they just admitted to what they had told them to admit to. And so, so that's all false. All those, all those statements, the information on the statements about their interaction with this young woman were, were false. They knew it at the time. Um, any reason, reasonably prudent police officer should have known that that this case stunk from the beginning, and uh, so that's where the misconduct is. It's the, the, the deliberate hmm. effort to, uh, to obstruct justice by 
getting them to say something they knew they didn't. Yeah. To admit to something they knew they didn't do. So one of the things about the docuseries and, of course, my own memory of of, of this incident, I, I'm not much older, in fact, than than the, the, the five young men who were accused of this crime. And, yeah. and so one of the things I can remember is is this notion of when to talk uh, when you're interacting with authorities uh, and and whom to trust, right? Uh, uh-huh. th- this idea that, uh, as particularly as an African American young man, you can't always trust authorities the way other people do, but but that nobody really should trust the way that these boys were encouraged to trust and and to say these things. Uh, they probably should have said nothing, and and I think that's part of the the scariest. Uh, one of the scariest dimensions of this whole thing is that yeah. uh, they didn't know that, and that's what opens the door to this absolutely calamitous period in their lives. Well, they certainly didn't. You're right. They certainly. Uh, uh, it would have been probably uh, the best advice for them to have said nothing. But you have to remember, these kids—they were kids. They were 14, 15. Even Corey, who was 16, was probably. Uh, amongst the five of them, uh, in some ways, the most immature, even though he was 16 and initially tried and, and served time as an adult. But they were, they were a young kid with no real experience with the criminal justice system, as were their parents and family members. They had no real experience with the criminal justice system. And they were set upon by, a, by teams of, of hard-nosed, sophisticated veteran Manhattan homicide detectives uh, who had, you know, who were the cream of the crop in the New York City Police Department to be a Manhattan homicide detective. And uh, so it was like taking candy from a baby, really. And what they did was, uh, you know, if you really, if you if you look at the five statements that were given, four videotaped, one, uh, the, the, the fifth one was uh, not videotaped, but it was uh, written down. And it was alleged that uh, Yusef said it. Those five statements, um, as a very sophisticated uh, operation here, they really they, they didn't. Their focus was not to get any of the five to say I did it. Okay. Um, so, so they could say, well, we know you were a good kid. We know you didn't do anything. But but tell us what Raymond and tell us what Kevin and tell us what Antron said. And if you don't, you know, they're telling us what they're talking to my our, our partners somewhere else. And so you better get on board and you better start talking or, you know, you're the only one that's going to go down for this. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and so it was getting them to place themselves at the scene, first of all. And then, of course, uh, what they did was well. Now, for it to be believable, you have to you have to say you know, for instance, that you you were holding her leg or you were holding her arm or you you know somehow involved in it. You know, as you said, somebody did this and somebody else did this, and so it was this kind of mosaic, uh, so sort of a sophisticated mosaic of 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 uh, liabilities. They didn't understand, for instance, what the felony murder rule is. If you if you're with a group of people and somebody dies, you all can be charged for murder. They didn't, they didn't understand any of that. I mean, it, you know, this, these were young kids who were, they were, one, you know, they were barely out of elementary school um, and, uh, um, you know, had no understanding of what was going on. And so 
you know, that's that's who they were up against. And, uh, and it, it took them a while, but they eventually got these stories together. I mean, they didn't do a, a really good job when you really look at it because if you hold up the five statements next to each other, they're inconsistent in every major way. Mm. And so even even back then, even had you had a fair-minded detective or a police officer trying to do their job to do justice, not just to get a conviction, had they looked at that, they would have said, wait a minute. We have five statements that are all inconsistent in every major respect. We have no uh, physical evidence connecting them to the crime. We have no uh, DNA evidence connecting them to the crime. We have no eyewitnesses. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe we ought to look at these, look at this a little bit further. And by the way, and by the way, um, the person who actually did it, Matthias Reyes, they didn't know that on, on April 19th, but they knew on April 17th and identified Matthias Reyes, some of these same detectives, as somebody who perpetrated a vicious rape of a young white woman who was strikingly similar to uh, Patricia Mealy in the park, in that part of Central Park, two days earlier. They had identified him. They had they had located his address. They even had a sketch of him because the person who came to that woman's aid was an artist who was able to provide a very dramatically accurate sketch of Mateus Reyes. So they had what I would call the prime suspects in, you know, in their in their in their information base um, on the get go. And um, but once they committed to this theory that these five kids were the ones who did it. And we're going to make this case from this group of young uh, black and Hispanic uh, uh, boys. They would not be deterred. Uh, the evidence be damned. So, so I want to ask you about the process of trying to calculate the value of the damage done to these to these men. Uh, how do you determine how much money? they should be entitled to for for having lost so much of their lives and as I said in yeah. the open so much of their formative lives yeah. I mean these are these are years when uh, all kinds of things uh, cast forward into the rest of your life they, they sure, lost all are, of that yeah these are compel these are the most some of the most dramatic years of, of your life you know your whole, your teenagehood you know you going from being a boy to a man and um, well, it's not it's not an exact science. Um, you, you you start with the fact that for every day for seven years and every day for thirteen years for Corey, these people were incarcerated, taken away from their family, taken away from uh, you know doing what they wanted to do in life. You know, if you look at these five kids now, you um, well, not kids now, they're <laughs> middle aged men. If you look at them now, you say, "What would they have? How would they, what would they have done with their lives had this not happened to them?" Yusef Salon, for instance, is a dramatically effective public speaker. I mean, just an incredible wordsmith. Um, Antron McRae was uh, loved baseball, and his father was his coach, and he was, you know, he wanted a, a career in baseball. All these dreams of these young kids were de- were derailed. Not only by going through this this you know incredible process of being accused in pu- in such a public way and having uh, you know public figures all say you were guilty, having having 
Donald Trump, for instance, uh, taking out a full-page ad in every every newspaper in the city of New York shortly after this crime occurred, saying that they're guilty and they should have the death penalty. Um, so they were pariah, and so they had to serve all these years. And then when they got out before the before they were exonerated, the the, seven, the four who got out uh, after seven years, they spent five years uh, on on very restrictive. Uh, probation, uh, parole, because they were sex offenders, and they had to register as level one sex offenders. So for five years, they had to, they had a curfew. They had to be in in, in home by eight nine o'clock. So the pressure uh, that they they felt not only in jail but for the, you know after they got out uh, was intense on them and on their families. These are very uh, uh, these kids all come from very strong, loving, supporting families and. Uh, you know, who forever lived the shame of having believed these officers that if they just cooperate, they, they would be able to go home. And, uh, you know, so how do you measure that? Right. Well, you look at what other people have gotten in other cases, but ultimately it comes down to um, you have to put a money value on it. We we ended up getting an average of a million dollars a year for every year they were incarcerated, which was it's rough justice. I mean, it's not. Um, it's not exact. I mean, you could argue that it's that. You know, first of all, no amount of money could replace what they had. What they lost. What they went through. Right. Um, no amount of money could do that, and uh, you have to start with that proposition. And then you got to, you know, so how much is a year of your life worth? Um, I mean, a year for for uh, um, you know a, a very skilled. Uh, baseball player, a year of his life is worth $30 million. Um, are we to say that some young uh, black or Hispanic boy's life is worth uh, less because, um, you know, they're, they're not a professional baseball player or they haven't done this or they haven't done that? It, you know, it's an inexact science, and it really you really have to get down to the point where you say, what what can we do to give, to get some modicum of justice, knowing that the ultimate justice is that uh, uh, it wouldn't have happened, and we know that's not possible. So, you know, I, I think I, I would I would say at that point um, when we were trying to resolve the case, um, at that point uh, there had been a change in administration in the city. Um, we had put us put behind us twenty years of uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani and Michael Bloomberg as the mayors of New York, who were very very uh, you know opposed to. Uh, civil rights uh, on almost every aspect of how it affects young black and brown people. And we had a new administration, and they were more willing to sit down and talk. And they and we did, and we fashioned a remedy that that isn't perfect, but it allows them to go on with their lives in a, in a way that um, gives them some measure of a of redemption, perhaps. Yeah. I'm talking with Jonathan Moore, a partner in the law firm of Beldock, Levine, and Hoffman, LLP. He was involved in both of the settlements for the Central Park Five. Um, uh, my last question is about Linda Fairstein, who's still insistent that uh, these five men were involved in that incident yeah. that night in Central Park. How hard does that make uh, your work going forward while she's still insisting that uh that this this happened the way that uh, they were accused. Well, you know, um, 
it's that kind of a uh, of uh, tunnel vision attitude that that got her into trouble in the first place in this case that she refuses to see the facts she refuses to see her role as doing justice rather than just making a case now, i'll give you an example in, in a few months into the prosecution they had taken dna samples from all of the young kids all the people in the park and tried to match it to a sample found on this young woman who was killed i mean i killed but was viciously raped and assaulted um and it came back negative. And it's an amaz- amazing uh, reaction by the, the attorneys in the district attorney's office, Linda Fairstein, Elizabeth Letterer, Herb Levy, all these, all these folks who were involved in the prosecution. But they said, well, what are we going to do now? How are we going to explain this away? Not, not well, let, maybe we should look at this because now we have – We'll just have these inconsistent statements. Maybe, maybe we're looking. Maybe we should, you know, do a little more, uh, you know, digging to see if we really have the right people. So instead of re- responding by saying, "Let's take a look at this. Let's try to do justice," they simply circle the wagon and say, "Let's explain. Let's explain the, the lack of the DNA." They did it by saying, "Well, there must have been a sixth person hmm. who got away, who was involved in the rape," you know, and uh, that was a convenient theory because. Um, um, uh, 12 years later, 13 years later, that uh, when Mateus Reyes came forward, they could say, oh, here, see, here's the sixth person. Here's the sixth uh, you know? attack. So it was a very convenient theory. And so, um, you know, they, they it's simple the way public servants react to what is clearly here. Um, a total miscarriage of justice, and uh, and I have no sympathy for her. Uh, what she's going through, and you know, her loss of gigs or whatever, or you know, being on boards or whatever, or publishers dropped her. You know, I mean, it, compared to the years of incarceration, yeah, um, just too, and. Uh, she needs to just, um, she needs to, uh, you know, accept the dose of reality here. Okay, Jonathan Moore, a partner in the law firm of Beldock, Levine, and Hoffman LLP. It was really great to have you here to talk about this on Detroit Today. Up next, we're going to talk with Heather Ann Thompson, a historian at the University of Michigan who spends a lot of time thinking about kinds of wrongful conviction issues that are central to the story of the Central Park Five. Also, give us a call if you want to join the conversation. If you watched the Netflix miniseries, When They See Us, what did you think? Do you remember the actual trial and sentencing of the Central Park Five back in the 1990s? What do you think is the best way to right the wrongs that were done? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll get to listener calls next. Stay with us on Detroit Today.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We're talking this hour about the Central Park Five uh, controversy that has been reminded, or we have been reminded of recently with Ava DuVernay's really piercing docuseries, When They See Us, which is running on Netflix. Uh, We talked earlier about uh, how the legal side of this is being resolved and uh, sort of about the series itself. Now we want to take sort of a broader look at this case and put it into some context in terms of race, in terms of criminal justice, in terms of youth, and of course, in terms of forgiveness. And joining us to help put all of those things in that context is Heather Ann Thompson, who is a native Detroiter and historian on the faculty of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in the departments of Afro-American and African Studies, History, and in the Residential College. Heather, welcome back to Detroit Today. Great to be here. Yes, it is always great to have you here. So um, let's start with the racial question here. I mean, a lot of your work has to do with the role that race plays in criminal justice. One of the things that I can remember uh, when this happened was how quickly and how eagerly people wanted to believe this story. People wanted to believe that these five black men, uh, young men, were the the people who were responsible for that. And in retrospect, uh, I think it's hard not to look back and think that that, grease the skids for this to get to the point where it did as fast as it did. Absolutely. I mean, the context of uh, presumed black criminality is at the core of the the Central Park case. Um, But it's, of course, the core of American history uh, as some really amazing historians like Carl Sudler and uh, Khalil Muhammad have made just empirically, absolutely, unequivocally uh, certain that this is this is the in the DNA uh, of the United States that when there is uh, some traumatic event where someone is harmed, the presumption of black criminality is the beginning. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely where we start. And, uh, you know, as much as I think that this is incredibly important to call attention to the Central Park case, I think it's also really important that we remember that this is but one of many such cases in American history. Uh, And in every single context, white anxiety about black criminality drove hysteria that ended up uh, locking up uh, groups of young black men in particular and oftentimes, uh, you know, they would languish and whether or not they ever got out depended on how much public attention uh, came to their aid. And, uh, you know, we're at the case that this is only, you know, a shocking, unusual moment in American history would be bad enough. But the fact is we have seen this with the Scottsboro boys in the 30s. Uh, we saw it with the Harlem Six in 1965 uh, after the Central Park Boys were, uh, were had this horrific experience. Um, then began the horrific experience of numerous black men, particularly young black men, at the hands of, for example, John Burgess in Chicago, mm-hmm. torturing convictions. And so, um, you know, I, I hope that this 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 docu series gives us a moment to really reflect on its universality rather than its exceptional uh, nature. Yeah. So, thirty years past that point, uh, 2019 versus 1989. 
What's different? Is is anything different? Well, you know, I do think that uh, it's not a linear story of black victimization. I mean, one of the things that happens every time that there is this railroading of young black men is that there's a a deep resistance on the part of the black community and, and white allies to to point out what's happening and to resist what's happening. So, you know, all the way back to Scottsboro, it's it was significant that the Communist Party USA and Clarence Darrow and and activists across the country rallied on their behalf. Um, it was significant during the Harlem Six case that J- everyone from James Baldwin to mm-hmm. William Kunstler rallied to uh, their defense. It was significant in the Central Park case that uh, everyone has rallied to their defense. And so, you know, and it's significant that John Burgess uh, eventually went on trial. So I, I do think that as where we are today is just this recognition that this will not go unchecked, yeah. that uh, that there will always be this this uh, resistance. Uh, one of the things that, that you and I have talked about before is how uh, the criminal justice system has sort of absorbed uh, this 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 feeling or this this attitude toward uh, African American existence even mm-hmm. um, o- over time and one of the things that that I'm always one of the parallels I guess I'm reminded of with the Central Park Five is is to Emmett Till uh, where the 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 reaction to a false accusation of course in that case was was a lynching I mean a brutal murder. Over time, what we've done, it seems, though, is kind of inculcate that kind of reaction into the the, the system itself, so that people aren't killed uh, under the under the the sort of justice uh, system for for those kinds of things. But their their lives are equally disrupted. Uh, I think uh, in the case of Central Park Five or or some others, that that what what we've done is kind of imbued the justice system with the vestiges of uh, Jim Crow and slavery before it. Well, there's no question that the criminal justice system in this country is proxy for white anxieties about blackness and brownness in America. So that is to say that we have indeed codified those anxieties so that, you know, perhaps one doesn't need a lynch mob to exact fury at uh, local black residents that uh, you know that one doesn't want in one's neighborhood, but on the other hand, you know I, I'm not sure uh, how starkly uh, that line is drawn. I think that if you look at the case of Sandra Bland, for example, it is not the case that uh, we are that far off from she the was days killed. exactly, right. and and if you look at the Chicago cases. Uh, where you have this police commander, John Burgess, who is, you know, he's he's now known, of course, the black community of Chicago always knew, but now is recognized to have tortured using every means possible, including electrocution, uh, uh, you know, confessions out of suspects. And how many of those died or were permanently maimed or injured uh, like a lynching? One, you know, one doesn't really know. And, and so I, I do think it's important to point out the way this has been codified and legalized and made seem 
sanitized and uh, and okay. But but it is also true that there are these still ugly eruptions that remind us we're not that far uh, from Emmett Till, which is why uh, docu-series like this are so important. It's why histories are so important to constantly put in our face where we are yeah. and where we've been. And your work... Um posits, I guess, the idea that incarceration is itself the problem. In other words, the reliance on incarceration, the sort of affinity for incarceration, the nature of incarceration in our in our culture is the driver of all of these things. And that I think this is the, the, the point where it becomes a difficult sell to people that you've got to back away from that, that the idea that people must be locked up. Uh, right. is is part of the problem and that you've got to kind of approach it from a different from a different vantage point. Well, absolutely. I mean, when people are sexually assaulted, rather than this hysterical uh, rounding up of young black men, again, this presumption of black criminality, there are ways to deal with trauma that are not in this hysterically racist criminal justice manner. And we know that because we know that sexual assaults happen in other places that do not handle it the way we do. And we know that uh, we also know that victims often feel uh, hardly uh, heard. Uh, you know, of, uh, the, the victim in the Central Park case has expressed deep anxiety about how this was all handled, quote unquote, in her name. And so I do think incarceration is the problem. And it's primarily the problem because it's the rush to judgments that lands so many people there. I mean, I'm currently working on a book on the move bombing in Philadelphia. And recently in the news has been a lot of fanfare releasing some of these uh, move members who were uh, 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 convicted of murdering a police officer um, now 40 years ago. Well, this was nine people uh, locked up for the shooting death of one person. Uh, and, and and now they're being let out because now we're realizing the way in which that was not just a rush for judgment, but it was a hysterical response to a tragic event. And um, so that should tell us that the system is not doing what we think it should do. And in fact, is, you know, once we name someone as a criminal, once we lock them up, it is very easy to accept everything else that we hear about them. Hmm. Uh, my guest is Heather Ann Thompson, a native Detroiter and historian on the faculty at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. We're talking about the Central Park Five, uh, the recent docuseries that uh, recounts what happened to these five young men uh, in New York in the late 1980s and early 1990s. We're talking about how, how it fits into the larger context of criminal justice and race, youth and forgiveness here in the United States. If you want to join the conversation Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Are you watching when they see us? Uh, what's your reaction to it? What's your reaction to the difference, the gap in time between 1989 and 2019? Are we better off in the way that we deal with these things now than we were then? Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Heather, I want to ask you uh, about how we make up for these kinds of these kinds of errors. I I, I asked uh, the, the the Central Park Five's lawyers that question. Uh, you know, his his context is money, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They're they they were injured and they are due compensation, which they've gotten. 
But it seems to me that from a cultural standpoint, there's there's something more perhaps that we're asked to do here. What 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 is that? Well, the ultimate the ultimate remedy is to actually stop this. It's to actually learn the way in which the system uh, profoundly marks uh, young black and brown bodies as criminal and work in really uh, systematic and structural ways to undo that and remedy that. But barring that, it is uh, it is very customary to think about monetary uh, damages as a response to this kind of trauma. I mean, I also wrote a book on Attica, and, and these men had been tortured and murdered systematically in 1971, and ultimately this uh, wended its way through the court system, and there was some financial recompense. But, you know, what they said is really profound. They said essentially that, you know, this wasn't justice, it wasn't close to justice, but it was the closest thing to justice <laughs> that they were ever going to get. Uh, in the system that we had. And so I think it's worthy of considering not a remedy as in retrospective remedy, but actually remedy is Casting that exactly forward thinking. How might we create a justice system that does not assume uh, black criminality, brown criminality? Well, that would be a fundamental restructuring of policing a fundamental restructuring of education, our school system, uh, our housing, our, our rental market. And, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big task, but one worth uh, really thinking about. Yeah. I want to get to some calls here, and I want to apologize to callers. I did a lot of talking this hour and didn't get you guys involved the way I normally do. Let's get to some of them now, though. Tamara in Detroit, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey. Hi, Heather. How are you? <laughs> Just fine. <laughs> Um, can you talk a little bit about the privatization of prison systems and how that profit index is impacting on our community? Yeah, great. Great point, Tamara. Thank you very much. Uh, go ahead, Heather. Well, I mean, I think that that's, of course, yet another driver. It's another reason why it pays off to criminalize black and brown bodies. And even though private prisons themselves are only about 7% of prisons, the privatization of criminal justice writ large, uh, the services, the, you know, everything from the medical transport to the to the the food services, uh, you know, equates locking up more people with a, a higher bottom line financially, and so that's what I meant about a remedy as going forward. Uh, if we want to really think about a better justice system, we have to think about all of the drivers that make it. Uh, uh, unequal and unjust right now, and the finances are absolutely one of those. Yeah, uh, uh, Tamara, thanks again for uh, the call. Let's quickly get to David. David, I'm running out of time time here, but uh, I want to get you in. Thanks uh, for calling. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I just wanted to make a quick comment. I think it's important the words that we use, and uh, there's been a lot of references to these individuals as black men. At the time of the occurrence, they were like 14 and 15. They were boys, yeah. They were boys. And and if they were white, all along at that time, they would have been referred to as boys. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, David, uh, great point, and I'm glad you called uh, to make that. Unfortunately, that's going to have to be the last word. Uh, Heather Thompson, it's always great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about how the immigration debate is pushing both major parties to political extremes and how different that is compared to other countries 
that are facing similar issues. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.